And as I begin our message this morning, I'm going to do something that I'm sure you guys like. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a confession. You know, we're in church, and church is supposed to be a safe place. We're supposed to be able to be real with each other. So I'm going to give you a very personal confession. And as I give you this confession, it is also an invitation to you. Where when I confess this, if you feel that same way, if you have that same struggle, you're going to have the opportunity to confess that as well. So when I give my confession, I'm going to say, here's what it is. And I'm going to say, one, two, three. And if you have that same struggle, if you want to make that same confession, you just say, me too. Simple enough, right? Okay. So I'm going to confess. And my confession is going to be an invitation for you to confess that back to me. Okay, you ready? I'm selfish. One, two, three. I knew there were several of us in here today. I knew that I would not be the only one. And some of you, some of you, you didn't play along. You didn't say me too. And that just shows that you're selfish as well. You're selfish for, for not playing. Man, if I'm, if I'm just being open and honest, like I'm selfish. Like I, I want things to go my way. I want life to be about me. And, and so I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, you're like, well, you're a pastor. You can't be selfish. I'm selfish, man. Like, we went camping this past week, and my wife made these monster cookies. And I don't know if you ever had these before, but they've got everything in them. It's like you put every good thing known to man in this cookie. You put uh, chocolate chips and M&Ms and peanut butter. I mean, it's just like a hodgepodge of, of, of beauty right there. My wife made these cookies, and we bring them up camping. And I'm kind of looking, and I'm like, oh, here's how many cookies. And, and, and somebody said to my daughter, hey, if you finish your dinner, you can have a cookie. And I'm sitting here thinking, that's one less cookie that's available to me. And then the second day, my daughter's like, well, dad, you know, I get four cookies because I did this and this. And I'm like, no, those are my cookies. You're like, you're like cramping my side. They're going to take my cookies from me. Man, I'm, I'm selfish. Like when I go out to eat with my wife, like she has this great idea. And I, she must have seen it in a movie. Where when we go out to a meal together, she has this beautiful idea that we would share a meal together. Like, I don't know if you've ever been there, but I'm like, no, no. like we don't go to, out to eat that often. But I'm looking at that meal and I'm thinking, no, I'm selfish. I want more of it for me. And it's worse when like, like when you try and split a dessert, like you got that dessert there and like you could put a line down the middle, like, like just figuratively, because if you put a real line down the middle, like that's not good for your marriage at all, right? But I'm looking at that dessert and I'm like, I need like 60% of that because I eat more calories. I'm bigger than you. I need more calories than you do. I am just selfish. Man, I'm not the only one in here though. You ladies know what I'm talking about. You ladies, have you ever had this situation where you've got maybe a friend or a roommate or a sister or a daughter and you look at them from a distance, you're like, man, that outfit they're wearing is really cute. That's a really cute outfit. And then they get a little bit closer, and they get a little bit closer, and you realize, you know why that outfit is so cute? It's because it's mine. You went into my closet, got my outfit without permission, and you're wearing my outfit, and that makes me angry. Ladies, why do you get angry? Because you're selfish. You've got all these other outfits, but they're wearing your outfit without permission. And you become angry because you're selfish. It's just the way it is. And anybody ever been at Costco? Anybody, anybody cut, in front of, cut in front of the line of you at Costco? Like how angry do you get when that happens? 
Why? Because we're selfish. We are selfish. I mean, I think about, I think about teenagers. Like, anybody known teenagers to be selfish? All the teenagers say, no, not me. And as a parent, we say, hey, 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 would you just go and, and clean your room? I don't want to clean my room. Why do I have to clean my room? Because you're selfish. Hey, teenager, here's, here's, here's what I want you to do. Here's, here's whatever it is. Uh, uh, a teenager comes and says, hey, can I have this? Can I do this? And you're like, no. And teenager, teenager gets mad. You know why they get mad? Because they're selfish. That's just what it is. And like, like you think about kids. Like, has anybody ever taught their kids to be selfish? Like, you don't teach your kids to be selfish. It's not like your kid tries out for the soccer team and you're like, hey, do not pass the ball ever. You take every goal. You don't ever look at, if anybody's in your way, just push them out of your way. It's all about you. No, you don't teach your kids that. They naturally have this tendency that's inside of us to be selfish. In fact, my, my youngest child, he's six years old. You guys know him. He's Oliver. And my, old, my daughter, she's eight. She had surgery this past week on Friday. She had surgery. She, she broke her arm a couple months ago and had two pins put in the length of her arm. So we had surgery on Friday to take those out. And my father-in-law, he's like, well, she had surgery. So he came over that night and brought four gallons of ice cream as a way, hey, encourage you, feel better. And, and my daughter's like, oh, this is awesome. And my son's sitting here like this. It's like, well, I didn't get ice cream when I got hurt. Papa, if I break my bone, you better, you better bring me five gallons of ice cream. Literally, that's what my six-year-old said. I didn't teach him that. Kids are just selfish. You and I, we have this, this, it's this natural inclination in our heart to be completely self-focused, to love ourselves above everything else. This is our nature, our human nature, our sinful nature. And the problem with the selfishness is this creeps into our faith. It creeps into our beliefs. And we become selfish. We start thinking about our faith. We start thinking about religion. We make it all about us. And we think God is there to satisfy our wants and our wishes and our desires. And so religion, instead of being about God, becomes about me. In fact, we go to church and we serve God because we think if we do these things, if we, we, if we, if we work for God, then God in return will help us, help us uh, fulfill our selfish desires. Like if I do this for God, then God will give me something in return and then I'll be really happy. And so we, we turn religion from being about God to being about us. And what happens is because we are selfish, we take even something like the church. We make the church all about us. So we step into church, and if they don't play our favorite song, we get angry. We step into church, and if they change the carpet to a color I don't like, we get angry. We want a church that meets our needs, that makes us feel good, that, that helps us feel like we can grow in our knowledge of God. And so we, we turn around and we, we, we take... Uh, we use God, we use religion for our own selfishness. And the church begins to respond in response to your selfishness. And so the church begins to respond and they start telling you, focus on you. You can have your, your best life now. The church will say, it's, it's, it's your turn. It's time to activate your faith and live your dreams. And what the church begins to do, because we all have the selfish nature, is we turn Christianity which is all about God, into this uh, moralistic, therapeutic deity. 
Where instead of, instead of being about God, we turn Christianity just into another form of self-help. For us to feel good about ourselves. For us to fulfill our selfish desires. And we can be happy with us. Because we like to live like it's all about us. And this all comes from our own selfishness. From a love of self. And we do whatever we can to please ourselves, to avoid pain, to bring happiness. And we go through life. And some of us come to the point where we realize, man, this is a really sucky way to live. Like living for yourself all the time. We go through life and we try it for for a period of time. And we find, man, this sucks. Like I can't keep up with this rat race. This rat race. I I can't do this all the time. And so we get to the point where we're fed up. And we go through seasons where we feel like we're, we're experiencing moments and seasons of the unselfishness. Like, like we're fully surrendered, we're living for other people, and we do this for a while. But then what happens is we revert back to our natural tendency, which is to be selfish, which is to be self-focused. Because our human nature will always be bent towards sin. This side of eternity, our human nature is always going to be bent towards pleasing ourselves and seeking our own happiness. And we quickly turn away from serving God and loving people back to serving ourselves and loving ourselves. Listen, I don't want to discredit. I don't want to discredit this idea that we should be in a church that meets our needs, that helps us grow in the knowledge of God. I mean, we, we should be in a church like that. But let me just... Let me just let me just surprise you. Maybe it'll be a surprise for you. Maybe it won't be. Listen, the church is not about you. The church is not about you. The church is not about me. In fact, life is not about you. Life is not about me. In fact, we go back to Christianity. The basis of what Christianity is, Christianity is not about you. I'll explain what I mean Throughout this message. This morning, we're starting a new series uh, throughout the month of August called um, Welcome to Church. And really what the series is, is it's an idea that we can start dealing with some issues that we want to deal with with our own church. As we look at Restoration Church, we are three years old. We've got a tremendous vision in front of us. We've got all these exciting things happening for us. And I wanted to have this opportunity for us to have some real conversations about where we are as a church about our next steps, about how we, how we can ensure we're prepared for the next season of what God's going to do with us. And so we're going to deal with topics that relate specifically to where we are right here, right now. That deal with our mission, that deal with our vision, deal with our values. And so if you're new to Restoration Church, this is a great time for you to kind of get a feel for who we are and what we are about. Today, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. If you need a Bible, uh, just slip your hand up and uh, there's an usher in the back who can bring one of these up to you. Matthew chapter 22, that's in the second half of your book. That's in the, that's in the New Testament. And in Matthew chapter 22, as you're turning there, Jesus is going to deal with this issue of selfishness that all of us deal with. Listen, if you don't feel like you deal with it, you're just lying to yourself because it's our human nature. And so Jesus is going to deal with this issue of selfishness. And, and I want to look at this passage, and I want to summarize it before we begin. So if you're like, hey, what's this sermon about? 
if you just write this down, you'll get the idea of what the sermon was all about. Okay? Because if we were to take this message, if you were to take the, the, the message of Matthew chapter 22, if, in fact, if you were to take the message of Christianity, and you were to boil it down into a very simple statement, I think this statement could be what the message of Christianity is all about. It's a statement that's on my shirt. It's not about me. Would you just say that with me? It's not about me. This is a simple statement that we're going to unpack exactly what this means for you and I and for our church and for our lives and and what God would have to say about about our attitudes about selfishness. So if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 22, before we uh, jump in, would you just join me in a word of prayer? God, we just want to come before you today and uh, just ask for your presence with us now. God, we came here today, um, and God, I don't know why we're here. Some of us are here for other reasons, but God, we know your reason is to meet with us. You brought us here because you want to, uh, you want to meet with us, and you want to have us come into the presence of the living God. So God, I just pray right now that you would allow your presence to rest on every one of us, that as we open up your word, that God, you would speak to our hearts that you would, would help us to understand, that you would uh, guide us, that you would convict us, that you would teach us, that you would love us, that we would feel your presence around us. And God, as, as we deal with this issue of selfishness, God, I pray that you would break our hearts for it, that we would understand what it means for us to love God and for us to love others. God, just pray as a, as a pastor, help me to step out of the way, that your word would be the thing that is taught today. God, we love you and praise you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Matthew chapter 22, just a little background. Uh, up to this point of, of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. He's, he's been on the earth now for, for 30-some years, and uh, he's nearing the end of his earthly ministry. He's already gone into the temple. He's driven out the, the money changers who were trying to take advantage of God's people as they were coming to worship God. And in Matthew chapter 22, there's this issue where there's three different times that some of the religious leaders of the day, they come up to Jesus and try and trap him. They want to ask him specific questions to try and trap Jesus because they want to do a couple of different things. If Jesus answers wrongly, it'll it'll cause two things to happen. First, it proved that Jesus was was a heretic. And that's what they wanted more than anything. They wanted to discredit Jesus, to prove he wasn't who he said he was, to show that Jesus was just some crazy guy, hopped up on some crazy medicine. The second reason why they wanted to uh, trap Jesus is they wanted to, they wanted to split. <laughs> they wanted to split his followers. He, they wanted to, to do something about his popularity because as he would come and as he would teach, uh, people would say, man, this man teaches not as the authority of, of just a pastor or, or, or a teacher. He teaches as the authority of the Son of God himself. And that created a following. And these religious leaders were jealous and said, no, we've got to do something to stop his popularity. So they, they came up to him. And there's three instances in chapter uh, 22 of, of the religious leaders trying to trap Jesus. The first one, the first two actually were done by the Sadducees, and they tried to trick Jesus in a couple different ways. One about the resurrection, and, and, and Jesus punked them both times. And here, in verse 34, the Pharisees, they're going to come up to Jesus, and they're going to try and trap him. And here's, here's what it says. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. 
It says, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a, asked him a question to test him. Now, when we see lawyer, I want to be clear, it's not the same kind of lawyer that you and I know. Uh, this kind of a lawyer was a, um, in the religious days, um, this was a scholar. This was a, an expert of the Old Testament law. This is somebody who knew all the commands of the Old Testament, who knew the Old Testament, who could probably, who would probably memorize a good portion of it. This is what it means when it says it was a lawyer. And it says in verse 36, the lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, when we hear the word law, we think, oh, well, that's like the Ten Commandments, right? These are all the laws you've got to follow for, to be right with God. But in fact, when we see law, law doesn't just refer to the Ten Commandments. It refers to the, all of the Old Testament. Everything that's in the first half of your Bible, this is what it's going to refer to. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are over uh, 600 commandments that governed, uh, that governed Israel, that governed religion in that day. There are 300 plus things that were prohibitions, like do not do this, don't do that, okay? 300 different of those types of commands. And then there was 285 or so commands of things that you are to do, okay? So there's 300, don't do this, don't do that. And then there's 285, do this and do that. And so the debate of that day is because they had so many rules. The debate of the day was, was which of these commandments are like more important than the others, like, which commandments are light? Which commandments are heavy? Kind of, we would look at it and say, which, which commandments are like uh, felonies and which ones are misdemeanors? Like, what are the ones that are really important? We've got to make sure we follow. And what are the ones that, you know, we're not supposed to do it, but everybody does it. Like speeding. Everybody goes five miles, over the, five miles per hour over the limit. That's what we do. Uh, maybe some of you don't. And then the rest of us drive right around you. But, you know, it's, it's which of these are really important and which of these are not. And so these Pharisees spent all this time debating and trying to figure out which commandments are the most important. Maybe it's the Sabbath day. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Maybe it's thou shalt not murder. Maybe, maybe it's thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so they, they, they have all these debates trying to figure out which commandments are most important. And so this is when they come up to Jesus. And they ask Jesus, which commandment is the greatest? Remember Jesus Jesus is the Son of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. And Jesus, he knows our nature. He knows our nature is always going to be selfish, to make life all about us. And Jesus knows the Old Testament. I mean, in fact, we've already said, oftentimes the people would say, Jesus, you're teaching with such an authority, not like an authority of a teacher, but as an authority like you actually wrote the word itself, like you spoke the words to those prophets. And so Jesus understands this. And so this is what he's going to say. He's going to simplify all of those commands of the Old Testament, all 613 commands into two commandments, the most important. In fact, these commandments are so important that Jesus says in verse 40 of our text, he says, on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Saying so you can take these two commandments and everything in the Old Testament is contingent upon these two commandments. In fact, everything in the Bible is contingent on it. It's kind of like this. If you picture having a door hanging, and you've got the two hinges that hold the door up. These commandments are like the hinges that hold up the Bible. They are that foundational to everything else that's dependent on these two. 
So here's the first commandment that Jesus is going to say. Verse 37. Now Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. He says, What is the most important commandment? What is the most important above everything else? And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This would have been a a passage of scripture that was very familiar to the Pharisees and to the religious people of those days. Because the faithful Jews, this was a passage of scripture that they quoted twice a day. They They would quote it once in the morning and then once in the evening. This is something that they would have known very well. See, when we look at this idea, it's not about me. What this tells me, it's not about me. It's all about loving God. Like we want to make life all about loving ourselves and pleasing ourselves. But this tells me that life is not about pleasing me. It's about loving God. So a couple of things I want to point out just from this commandment. To, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Because I want you to notice it says, verse 37, it says, You shall love the Lord your God. See that word love? Notice that it doesn't say you shall believe. It doesn't say you shall believe in the Lord your God. It says you shall love the Lord your God. See, so many of us, we settle for just believing. And we think, oh, as long as I believe, well, that's enough. Jesus wants more than our believing. Think about it this way. In James chapter 2, verse 19, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, he says that even the demons believe in God, and yet they tremble. Because they aren't redeemed. They believe in God, but they don't love God. They're not redeemed. They're not one of his children. This is a distinguishing mark of Christianity. It's not whether you believe in God, but whether you love God. Whether you are pursuing God. Whether you are wholeheartedly committed, not just to believe, but to love God. And he's going to go through and say, here's how you love God. You love God, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. If you think about heart, it's not about that that love emotion that we see on TV and in the the, the chick flick movies. And the heart is is the core of a person's identity. It is is where our our emotions and our actions and our decisions come from. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it, from your heart, flows the springs of life. Our hearts, they produce our our thoughts, our words, our actions. And this idea of loving God with all of our hearts is is with all of our, uh, that we're supposed to love God with all of our affection. We're supposed to love God unreservedly, nothing being held back. This is why when we sing worship, when we come together and we worship God, this is why we raise our hands in surrender. Because we're saying, all of me, God, is yours. Everything, every part of me is yours. And I'm coming to to love you with all of my heart because all of it is yours. Second thing it says is you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, the Greek word for soul here is is a word called suhe. And it means means, uh, breath. And it kind of gives the idea, if you can remember uh, back in the uh, Genesis story, where, where God breathed breath into Adam's nostrils. That was the breath of life. That was the breath of his soul. And this is kind of the idea. It's saying that we love God with, with all of our breath, 
with, with all of our being, with all of our will, with all of our purpose. Like everything in us that gets us up to breathe and move and, and live is in our soul. And that is what we're supposed to love God with. And the third thing he says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. With all your intellect. That you find in God the riches of knowledge and insight and wisdom. And those things from God begin to guide and satisfy all that the human mind was meant to be. So here's this first commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And we look at these and we see three separate compartments. We say, well, the three sep- separate things. You've got the heart, you have the soul, and the mind. But listen, this is meant to be read as one. They're not meant to be three compartmentalized part of your lives. They're meant to be one. Basically, the idea that we love God with every faculty that he's given us. With every part of us. We worship God with every part of us. It's nothing that we don't worship God with. It is our whole being that we worship God. So this is the first and the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And we say it's not about me, that means it's all about loving God. But the second commandment, verse 39, it says, and a second is like it. Meaning this, is, this second commandment has the same nature, has the same character, has the same importance for us to hear. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This ties right into loving God. It flows out of a love for God. Because when you love God right, you love people right. And so this tells me, when I hear this statement, it's not about me. There's two things it means. It means it's not about me. It's all about loving God. And it's all about loving others. All about loving God and loving people. Begin to see this and say, and what does it mean for us to love our neighbor? Like, what does that mean? I think if you just take that phrase and reword it a little bit, it makes a little bit more sense. Like this, as you love yourself, so love your neighbor. The ways that you love yourself, this is the way you're supposed to love other people. In, in, in the same way that you love yourself, you're supposed to love other people. If you have a, a zeal for yourself, a passion, an energy, creativity, your own perseverance, you're supposed to love people with that, those same, uh, that same way. In fact, there's a pastor, John Piper, uh, many of you have heard of. John Piper, dealing with this issue on loving your neighbor, he says this. He says, make yourself seeking the measure of your self-giving. The ways that you seek yourself, to please yourself, to satisfy yourself, that becomes the measure for how you love other people. You love them the same way that you love yourself. So as you think about this, as you long for food when you are hungry, you should also long to feed your neighbor who is hungry. As you long for nice clothes for yourself, you should also long for nice clothes for your neighbor. As you work to provide for yourself a comfortable place to live, man, you should also desire that your neighbor has a comfortable place to live. As you seek to be safe and secure from violence, man, this is the same attitude that we should have to the people around us. That we would seek that they would be safe and secure from the violence and the other things around. 
as we think about ourselves and how we pursue happiness in our own lives, man, we should be that passionate about, about pursuing happiness in the lives of other people. Man, this is hard, though. This is hard. And I don't know about you, but I begin to justify this. I say, okay, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. So I, I begin to think, well, who's my neighbor? Like, there are certain neighbors I really like. Like, I have no problem seeking their benefit, seeking their well-being. There's a story that Jesus tells about the story of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus is telling the story to help us understand who our neighbor really is. And in the story, there's, there's a Jew who's, who's beaten and he's left for dead on the side of a road. He, 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 he's bound for death. And it says that uh, a priest and a Levite, good Jewish people, they come and they see the man lying on the side of the road dying. And they decide, I'm going to walk across and walk on the other side of the road and leave him there. And along comes a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans and Jews, they didn't get along. They despised one another. You can think about this, like the 1800s, this is the white and blacks. Like, they were at odds all the time. It was an opportunity, hey, if I could cause, uh, if I could inflict any type of hurt on your race, I'm going to do it. This was a relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Samaritan man lends a hand, picks that guy up, nurses him back to health. And Jesus says, this is our neighbor. And that becomes very challenging to me. Because it's easy for me to love people I like. It's easy for me to love people who fit my context of being worthy of it. But here, the context of our neighbor, man, this could be the homeless guy sitting on the street corner. This could be the drunk that parties late at night on your street. This could be any number of these people that Jesus is saying... We're supposed to love them as we love ourselves. So we think about this idea. It's not about me. And Jesus is being very clear. It's not about you. It's about loving God. It's about loving others. We're not even included in the story yet. It's about God. It's about others. And then maybe he'll throw ourselves third. And so when I think about this idea about it's not about me, it's about loving God, it's about loving others, what, strucks, what stri- strikes me about this statement is I always have this tendency to revert back to self-centeredness, to be all about me. Like I, I can come to church and I can hear a great message. Hey, it's all about loving people. We got to reach people around us. We got we to gotta love them. We got to share the gospel with them. And I can hear this and I can get excited about it on a Sunday morning. But then guess what's going to happen? Is on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, something's going to happen and it's going to affect my happiness and I'm going to get angry and I'm going to become self-centered again and I'm going to start pursuing my own happiness once again. Because this is what happens with us humans. On this side of eternity, we have this sinful nature. And so I, I, I say this phrase, it's not about me. I say it like it's a, like a, like a, vision statement, like a mission statement for your life. Like it's one of these phrases that if we could just ingrain in our head time and time and time again, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. Like imagine the impact that could have. Imagine the impact that it could have if we lived with this principle in mind every day. It's not about me. 
So I tell you, statements like this, they're only good if you have them in front of you on a regular basis. So that's why, that's why as a church, that's why we came up with these t-shirts. It's not about me. We've got a few of these t-shirts left. We're going to do another order. If you're interested in one of these shirts, uh, $15 donation, um, come see me. I'll get your shirt size and we'll get you added to it. But this is a statement. This is a statement that should be on your refrigerator at home. This is a statement that should be on your... I know some of you are, all of you are really good drivers. And when somebody cuts you off, you don't get angry. This is a statement that I need on my, uh, on my dashboard to remind me when I'm driving and somebody does something, it's not about me. Maybe you need it next to your radio. Like when somebody rides in your car and they change the radio station, you get angry because it's my car. Don't touch my radio station. It's not about me. It's not about me. This is, this is a statement that should be in your classroom, should be in your office, should be on your cell phone. It's not about me. Because just imagine, just imagine what your life would be like if you lived by this principle. Think about those of you that are married. Think about your marriage. Like, what would your marriage be like if you lived with this principle? It's not about me. You think about those frustrations you have. You think about those, those times you get angry and you want to fight because of whatever it is. Listen, if you live with that principle, it's not about me. Like, how quick will those little things be done with? Because we realize, man, the reason I got angry is because I'm selfish. The reason I got frustrated was because I'm selfish. I think about how many marriages would be saved if both spouses lived with this principle. It's not about me. And what about your workplace? What if you took this principle and applied it into your workplace? Like how, how much more respect would you earn if you live for this principle? It's not about me. I'm not going to seek just my best interest. I'm going to seek the best interest of the other people around me. Like, like how much respect would you gain from that? Like how many more sales would you make if you live with this principle where you're not looking just to satisfy yourself, but you're looking to satisfy somebody else? Like, how many more business deals would go well if we just lived with this principle? It's not about me. How many people could we help in our community if we put this principle to practice? It's not about me. And I think about our church. I think about right here, Restoration Church. We've got a very specific mission, mission, that we would know Christ and make Christ known, that God would do something in our city, that God would use our church strategically planted downtown to reach people who are far from God, to see lives become restored, to see marriages restored, to see families restored. Imagine what this church would be like if we lived by that principle. It's not about me. Because listen, if church is not about you, then who is it about? Look around you. Look to your left and look to your right. Look behind you. Look in front of you. That's who it's about. It's about people who are far from God without an intimate saving relationship with Jesus Christ. 
It's about people who don't have the love and the support and comfort of having a church family on their side to walk through life with them. It's about people who are struggling to survive and are looking for just a little bit of hope to survive another week. This is what it's about. And if we would just get past our selfishness in our church, and listen, there's some of you, this isn't an issue. But I'm saying, what if this became one of our guiding principles as a church? Like this principle frees us from making the church about us. It frees us from being, seeing the church and being a consumer where no longer are we coming to church expecting something, but instead we come to church looking to be a producer, to give, to bring value, to bring what we have and say, God, this is what I have. Can you use it right here in the context of the local church? I think just real practical. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like how many of you have been new to a church? And you step into that setting where you're new. Think, man, what are the things that I want? Like, I want someone to greet me. I want someone to offer to take me out for coffee. I want someone to to, uh, generally be interested in getting to know me. I want someone to, to, to go through the ropes with me, to help me understand how to take a next step. I want someone to, 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 to pray for me, to say, hey, how can I pray for you today? Listen, if church is not about you, then what's stopping you from being that for somebody else? Like this is what it's about. Like when I start thinking about our church, I start thinking about our next steps. I think about the growth we've experienced and the growth that we're, we're praying for. Man, if we were to embrace this principle, it's not about me. Then we'd be known for something completely, completely different. Like it's often said, like, what is your church known for in your community? Like, like are you known for us? We've, we've, we could be known for a couple different things. We could be known for a community garden. We could be known for meeting at the Seasons Performance Hall. But what if we were known as a church that loved God and genuinely loved people? Like, what kind of transformation could occur if that's what we were known as? As a church that loves God and a church that genuinely loves people. And I just, to come to a close, I just want to be very honest about this. Because this sometimes feels very threatening. It feels, uh, it feels almost overwhelming for us to consider, man, I'm supposed to love other people as myself. And I know myself, I get to the point, man, if I have to love other people as myself, that means I can't love myself as much. And I begin to decrease. And I know this just rubs against us. We think, well, no, 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 no. It needs to have some portion about me. What about all the longings I have for my own safety and my own health and my own happiness? I'm supposed to feel that for my neighbor? Like, how is this even possible? How can I actually live this out? I know there's some of us that say, hey, I want to live like this. Like, like how do I do it? And, and I think Jesus wants us to have this feeling. He wants us to be burdened with how do we do this? How do we love our neighbor as ourselves? He wants us to be burdened with that until we realize this is why Jesus made the first commandment the first commandment. See, the first commandment, which is to love God with every part of us, it makes that second commandment to love other people as ourselves 
possible. The first commandment makes the second commandment possible. Loving your neighbor becomes a visible expression of what it means for us to love God with every part of ourselves. See, when we love God with all of us, as Jesus commands, then we love God and we begin to take all of that selfishness, all of that self-loving desires for, for joy and hope and security and fulfillment and significance. We take all those self-fulfilling desires and we seek to have those fulfilled, not of ourselves, but through Jesus. And God begins to fulfill those in our hearts. And he begins to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. This is what happens when you love God with every part of you. Is he begins to fulfill those longings in your heart. All those things that we become so consumed about and so selfish about. Our own happiness and our joy. When you love God, he fills those longings. He fills those holes. He would say to us, come to me wholeheartedly love me and I will give you fullness of joy. I will give you the longings of your heart. And we see that Jesus becomes enough to fully satisfy us and to fulfill us. And what happens is when Jesus, when we love God wholeheartedly and Jesus becomes enough and he fills those deep longings in our soul, it's like this great discovery that we experience Because the way that we love people changes. Because no longer are we loving people hoping to fulfill our own longings. Our longings have already been fulfilled by Jesus. Now we can love people in a completely different way. In a way that Jesus has loved us. We can feel free to love because our selfish desires have been fulfilled by Jesus. This is why the second commandment is the second commandment. Because first and foremost, we have to love God wholeheartedly. And that frees us to be able to love people as we love ourselves. And it just gets me excited to think about being a church that lives by this principle. It's not about me. Because I think about what kind of transformation we could see in our community. I could think about the lives that would be changed if we stepped into church not looking for what I'm going to get from it. But instead of saying, what can I give to it? How can I make a difference in someone else's life? Would you pray with me? God, I just feel like I got to come before you and just repent of my own selfishness. God, of how many times I do, I come back and I make life all about me. God, I think about even this church. I think how many times I make church about me. About what I want. God, I'm just thankful for this challenge. To live with this principle in mind. That it's not about me. It's all about loving God and loving other people. And I just pray for us as a church. That as we wrestle with this idea. That God, you would help us to put this into practice. That when we step into uh, our areas and our, our, our spheres of influence in life, that we would genuinely seek, first and foremost, to love you, but then secondly, to love others as ourselves. That we would set our selfishness aside and begin pursuing the well-being of others beyond, above ourselves. 
that would love people the way that you love them. Not holding back. That our self-seeking would be the means for our self-giving. God, I pray as we come in today, God, we still have these longings. We still have these holes in our hearts, these issues that we're dealing with. And God, I pray that you just help us to love you wholeheartedly with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. That God, those longings would be fulfilled by you. That those hurts and those pains and those concerns of our heart, that you would fill those today with your Holy Spirit. That your presence would engulf us that we would be satisfied in ways that we could never experience on our own. That you would supernaturally come and love us in a way that we desperately desire to be loved and accepted. That we could step into that and we could feel your presence around us. God, I pray that you help us to experience that, that satisfying presence of you in our lives. So that way, God, we can love other people the way that you've designed us to. To love other people as ourselves. God, I pray that you just help us to keep this thought on our mind. Those times that we want to revert back to selfishness, we'll come back to this idea, it's not about me. That you'd give us the ability to see this change in our lives. Christian church were designed in a very specific way for the end of our service we want to have a couple of songs just have the opportunity to respond to God's word to spend some time in prayer spend some time in worship just praising you for who you are praising God for who he is so I invite you over the next next two worship songs next three worship songs respond to God's word however you need to today some of you need to fall on your knees just like me and repent of our self-centeredness Repent of our selfish tendencies. Pray for forgiveness. Pray for God's presence. Some of us just need to, to uh, just get lost in worship and praising God for who he is as uh, uh, a way that we can love God wholeheartedly. However it is you need to respond to God's word today, I invite you to do that. If you'd like a pastor to pray with you, if you'd like an elder to pray with you, during either of these songs, you can come forward. I'd love the opportunity to talk with you and pray over you and encourage you. God, just thank you for meeting with us here now. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your word. God, I pray that as we've wrestled with this today, God, I pray that you help us not just to come and hear a message. God, you'd help us to walk out of this building and to live it. God, love you and praise you when I ask this in your name.